0: I'm absolutely optimistic about the future. I I think uh, even though we're seeing a lot of difficulties in terms of uh, the pandemic, social justice, and and international relations and so forth, but I think uh, human beings are rational beings and we are capable of finding solutions. I do believe that even though democracy we know it's not perfect, but it's still the best system. The US is not perfect, but it's the best country to live in. And, and so I do think that we will find good solutions for our challenges, and the future is bright.
1: Those were the words of Dr. Andrew Hsu, the president of the College of Charleston, the 13th oldest university in the United States. Dr. Xu was announced as the 23rd president of the college back in late 2018. He was born in China in 1956 and his journey to becoming a university president in the United States is an extraordinary one. Welcome to the Who's on the Move SC podcast. I am your host, Alan Cooper. In this series, we explore leaders who are making an impact in our communities. I had the privilege to sit down for 30 minutes with President Xu. This podcast represents our full conversation. To find a shorter video version of the interview, please go to our Charleston, South Carolina-based website, lowcountrybizsc.com. Dr. Shu, tell us about your education and background. It's quite a story.
0: Obviously, I, I'm a, a new immigrant uh, from 40 years ago uh, to the U.S. Uh, I grew up in China, and uh, I probably grew up uh, during one of the worst period of time uh, other than wartime. It's probably one of the worst period of time in in Chinese history. So my uh, memory of childhood are are mostly very painful uh, and and obviously this country has been uh, great to me, um, welcomed me with open arms, so I'm very appreciative. Uh, my educational background. I have a uh, PhD in aerospace engineering and I uh, worked in industry private industry for about 10 years before uh, I joined uh, academia as a um, professor in uh, mechanical engineering taught uh, mechanical engineering for about 10 years before I got into administration and then uh, from there, I became a dean of uh, engineering, a provost, and now a president. What was it like
1: to live in China during the Cultural Revolution?
0: So, the, the Cultural Re- Revolution is, is really a, sort of a political move from the, the then Chinese leaders to um, uh, assert better control and absolute control of, of the country. And the, the method that he used is really to destroy uh, all the establishments, uh, including the educated uh, uh, class. And it just so happened my, both my parents were educated and therefore they need to be re-educated. Uh, and, and the way that they're re-educated is that they were sent to the countryside and, and do manual labor in the fields. And uh, at the time, uh, I was, uh, you know, the cultural revolution happened uh, from when I was 10 years old till ended when I was 20 year old. Uh, And uh, so uh, during those 10 years, uh, I had very little in terms of uh, formal education. Schools were mostly interrupted. So I uh, was spending time with my parents in the fields, uh, you know, Growing corn, cotton, and, and so forth, and then uh, after I uh, left high school, then of course I myself needs to be uh, need to be re-educated, and and then so I was sent to the countryside to do uh, manual labor. Uh, so uh, the education, K-12 education, at best is uh, intermittent. Um, but in order to escape from the constant barrage of political uh, struggle and and, uh, and and just in general uh, pressure from society, I withdraw into books. So um, I studied. Uh, I, I read novels from the. Uh, western culture and some of them started to learn english through some of these books and and also uh, studied uh, calculus and physics and so forth uh, using english as as a way to also uh, learn english i guess so those kind of activities sort of took my mind off the daily life it's almost a, a way to survive at the time, of course, I had no idea that one day I could actually leave the country and and uh, go to a different uh, uh, country but uh, at the time it was just a way, it's just a way to escape
1: what were some of your early interests when you were young
0: yeah you know, in, in uh, when I was uh, a child I I guess I just had so many dreams of becoming different things uh, all the way from a a musician to an athlete to a scientist and and so forth Uh, but of course uh, as far as uh, music and uh, um, and sports is concerned I just don't have the talent so I I have to give up early on and uh, um, but I uh, found that I really do have an act for uh, math and science. Uh, So I stuck with that, of course. That led me to eventually get a PhD. So uh, my my early wins uh, really was I I stumbled into administration uh, sort of accidentally. Uh, In my early days, I was a really good professor, good teacher in the classrooms and also a, uh, a good researcher. And, and as a good researcher, I used to uh, do a lot of grants, publish a lot of papers, and, and through that process, I had to deal with a, uh, university administration quite a bit, especially the branch that deals, handles research. And, and I often would complain to my dean uh, that uh, you know, I'm just not getting the type of support that I need as a researcher and, and your staff is not doing the right thing and so forth. So uh, one day after I became a full professor, uh, my dean said, well, if you know so much about research and what we're doing wrong, why don't you come to the dean's office and be my associate dean for research and graduate programs? So that was sort of my first foray into administration. And during that uh, period of time, I had the honor of working with the then uh, Senator, U.S. Senator Richard D- G. Lugar uh, of Indiana, and established a Luger Center for Renewable Energy. And I had the good uh, fortune of uh, observing um, how uh, he deals with people and and, uh, he's a great world leader and and I just learned so much from him Uh, even though sometimes he jokingly say that I was his mentor in terms of uh, renewable energy, but he really is my sort of first mentor into leadership. And then um, after working with uh, Senator Luger uh, establishing the, the new, at the time, the new Center for Renewable Energy, uh, I was fortunate to be selected as an ACE fellow. ACE stands for American Council on Education. And the fellow uh, gets to spend a year with a university president uh, to shadow to be mentored, to learn what uh, academic leadership is all about. And I was fortunate to, at the time, be able to shadow uh, President Gordon Gee of Ohio State for an entire year. And uh, he was, of course, one of the most experienced uh, presidents in the entire country. He first became a university president in 1981. So by the time uh, I reached him, uh, he was a president of 26 years, 28 years already. Um, So uh, he became my formal mentor and and I spent an entire year with him sort of being the apprentice and and, uh, after I left the program, he continued to be my mentor and he taught me uh, essentially everything I know uh, on how to be a good university president.
1: You mentioned that you love teaching. What did you love about it?
0: Well, being inside of the classroom is uh, very exciting to me because you not only get to impart your knowledge, but you can influence the lives of young people, the the next generation. And the reason that's especially fulfilling to me was that I lacked that opportunity when I was young. And uh, as a result, uh, I always felt that education is just the best thing that could happen to a young person. And I want to impart that excitement to the next generation of students. And uh, uh, the fact that I eventually chose to teach full-time was because when I was teaching part-time, uh, I, was, I remember I was teaching computational uh, fluid dynamics at the time, uh, two of my students in that class said, wow, this topic's so exciting, we decided to Uh, go to graduate school and get a PhD in this area. And I said, "Wow, I didn't know I had that kind of influence on people. So wouldn't it be nice for me to do that uh, as a profession rather than just uh, teach part-time? So that's why, uh, and that's when I moved from industry to uh, become a professor.
1: You mentioned that President Gee at Ohio State University was one of your mentors. What did you learn from him?
0: I, I think the one thing that I like most about him is the fact that he is accessible to everyone. Uh, of course, I learned a lot from President Guy. you know, he uh, was the one, uh, you know, I just asked, uh, what makes you a, su- such a successful president? And he said, you need to just do three things well. And the first thing is you need to develop and and articulate a clear vision for the university. Second one is that you have to build a strong leadership team around you. And third one is that you have to serve as a symbol of the university and to be present, to be visible. And, And I think the last thing is probably what I liked him the most, and is what I benefit from the most. Um, for example, on the campus of 50,000 students like the Ohio State University, when he walks on campus, every single student would know who he is and would say hello and, and would even stop him and, and, and talk to him about their, uh, their academic career there. So he's that visible and accessible, and and he would visit legislators on a regular basis, he would uh, talk to student parents, talk to faculty, staff, uh, talk to all the constituents all the time, and and I think it's that kind of uh, accessibility and visibility that helped him to become a successful university president. And and during my uh, two years here, even though the pandemic sort of uh, hampered that a little bit, but I try my best to imitate that. And and I think that really helps me to um, better understand the students and uh, better understand our faculty, our uh, other constituents, and, and overall be a better university president.
1: Tell us a little about the history of the College of Charleston and what are some of its unique differentiators.
0: Uh, The University, uh, the the College of Charleston uh, was uh, actually one of the oldest universities in the country. We're the oldest in South Carolina, oldest in the South outside of Virginia, and the 13th oldest in the country. So we just celebrated our 250th anniversary Uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, even though, again, the pandemic sort of shortened that celebration a little bit. Uh, But it's an outstanding uh, institution that prides in its long, excellent liberal arts education history. So if if you say, is there one thing that distinguishes the College of Charleston, is that long liberal arts history? and uh, the other thing that I think distinguishes us from some of our peers is the fact that uh, most of our faculty members um, not only that they have a very good pedigree very good research background but they enjoy and is excited about undergraduate education and they come here because they wanted to excel in undergraduate education. So we are one of the best uh, undergraduate teaching institutions because of that.
1: Talk about moving the college forward. What does strategy look like over the next several years for the college?
0: So the the first thing uh, that I try to do coming into the College of Charleston is to develop a vision. You notice that developing a vision is the top one among the top three things that President Gee told me that are important. So that's certainly my first priority and the entire university actually did the SWOT analysis and and, uh, we spent an entire year develop a vision and also the surrounding initiatives to support that vision. Um, And uh, we, uh, you know, I of course came in with some ideas and, and after my analyses, I took my presentation, which I titled uh, Tradition and Transformation to the Board, to our faculty, staff, alumni, uh, donors, uh, community, uh, and, and talk about the possible futures of the college. And, and I think at the end, after people have seen all the data, you know, I'm an engineer, so obviously I collected a lot of data and I showed a lot of data to every, everybody who is willing to, to digest that. Uh, and, and once you see all those data, then the solution or the vision become um, clear, becomes self-explanatory so we now have a clear vision that the college wants to be a national university known for innovations in the liberal arts this uh, in particularly in the liberal arts innovation in the liberal arts so that's our vision and and we have a strategic plan that would help us uh, achieve that vision. And in that strategic plan, we have three pillars or three focus areas. And the first one, of course, is student success. The second one is academic distinction. And then the third one is employee success. And uh, we have, um, of course, uh, several initiatives and and uh, um, under each of those pillars, we have initiatives to achieve our goals and each Uh, initiative has metrics uh, and and specific goals that we want to achieve and uh, if we can make progress in all three areas then I think we will be able to achieve those goals and and I also want to mention that to link all those three pillars together we have three cross-cutting themes that are important in every pillar and those three cross-cutting themes are of course innovation and then diversity and inclusion and finally um, engagement engagement with local industry engagement with local communities i love this
1: idea of innovating in the liberal arts we tend to think of innovation in the areas of manufacturing or health sciences talk about what you envision by innovation in the liberal arts?
0: When, when I talk about uh, innovation in liberal arts, uh, I'm thinking about two things, right? The uh, first one is uh, how you teach. And the second one is what you teach. Um, and uh, what defines liberal arts education Uh, has evolved throughout history, right? So, uh, of course, in Greek times, it's just three topics. And in the Renaissance times, uh, it became seven topics. But over the last uh, two, three hundred years, the seven topics are no longer enough. So a good liberal arts education is an education that a well-rounded, well-educated citizen should have. Uh, in order to become a responsible, uh, ethical citizen, right? Uh, so initially, you, you only need to learn three things, uh, arithmetics, uh, rhetoric, and grammar, um, and, and then uh, you added uh, you know, perhaps uh, astronomy and, and music and, and so forth but those are no longer sufficient. So now modern day liberal arts education, you have history, you have um, language, uh, you have social sciences, uh, you have uh, women and gender studies, uh, that there's uh, all kinds of new disciplines uh, that are now included in a good, well-rounded liberal arts education. So then the question is, uh, moving forward, is that enough for the next century or the next 250 years? Uh, I, I think, uh, as society evolve, as the way we live evolve, uh, liberal arts education needs to evolve with it. And and how do we teach uh, liberal arts education? Uh, to our students. So, So those becomes sort of the innovation. I always imagined a good liberal arts education in the future would not only include what's already there now, but it would probably expand. Because society is so dependent on technology now, it's going to be dependent upon artificial intelligence, biotech, So, moving into the future, a well-rounded, well-educated citizen would not only understand social sciences, political science, and, and so forth, but would also have some rudimentary knowledge of technology, artificial intelligence, biotech, and so forth. In fact, I would even argue that to be a good political scientist or to be a good politician, or a lawyer, or, or a social scientist, if you do not understand technology, uh, AI, and, and biotech, then you may not be able to function as a politician or a, a, an attorney very effectively. For example, in the future, uh, we know AI is coming. We know it's already here, and we know at some point we needed uh, government regulations to regulate AI. We know when you have an uh, AI-driven car get into an accident, it's gonna be in the courtroom. So for the lawyers and politicians to be able to regulate or to be able to argue Uh, in a courtroom, they have to have some basic understanding. And and I would argue every citizen should have some understanding of all of those. So I I think uh, the future of liberal arts education, how we define it, is gonna evolve. And the College of Charleston wants to be at the forefront of that.
1: What role do you see the College of Charleston playing in the local business community?
0: So the college, like I said, uh, has been traditionally a liberal arts college. Uh, but as I mentioned, um, you know, society is changing, the economy in Charleston is changing. I, I would even say that uh, the city of Charleston has already arrived as an international destination for technology and uh, high-tech manufacturing. So it's no longer just a tourist destination. And for the College of Charleston to serve our local economy, we need to evolve. We need to establish new programs. So uh, this past two years, we just implemented two new engineering programs, and we are developing more engineering and technology type of programs. We're enhancing our existing programs that would make sense for our local economy, such as uh, education, our marine biology, our uh, hospitality and tourism programs, uh, our music programs, our arts programs. So we are going to select a number of programs that would make sense for the College of Charleston to excel in that we already have strength or that we will build strength in that will distinguish us Uh, in the future and and it would make a lot of sense if those um, signature programs that we are going to establish would meet also the need of our local economy.
1: What one metric is most important to you as the leader of this institution?
0: The most important metric that I would like to follow is actually our student success. Right, So we're here. Uh, for but one reason and that is to educate our students and as a public institution we need to make sure that our students are successful on our campus and we measure our student success with our first-year retention rate and our four-year and six-year graduation rate and actually those are the things that I am actually constantly monitoring and I've repeatedly told uh, our staff, our faculty, that student success is the most important thing for the College of Charleston.
1: Tell us about some of your interests outside of the academic world.
0: Uh, There are many, like like I said, when I was young, I I used to dream of being too many different things. And as a result, I developed a lot of interests. So music certainly is one of my passion. Uh, I like uh, both uh, vocal music and and orchestral music. Uh, I also, uh, I'm uh, uh, playing a lot of tennis nowadays, primarily with my kids and my wife. And and obviously, uh, I enjoy spending time with my family. Uh, I try to take a long walk with uh, my wife and, and uh, our eight year old uh, golden retriever Hoosier uh, on the beach or, or in town. So, uh, those are some of the things that I do on a regular basis.
1: What are a few of your favorite books? Maybe mention both nonfiction and fiction.
0: Uh, So in terms of fiction, of of course, there are many, but uh, the one that jumps uh, to mind right away is a book called uh, uh, The Wind of War, and it's by Herman Woke, and uh, it's a a pretty thick novel. The reason I enjoy that very much is it not only talks about personal life of the characters there, but it involves history. It talks about the entire World War II and and all the politics behind it, Nazism, Communism, and and the freedom and so forth. So that's probably uh, one of my most favorite uh, fiction um, books. Uh, And in terms of nonfiction, uh, it's hard to say, uh, you know, in, in terms of spiritual, uh, Herman Wolk, also uh, you know the, the same author who wrote the war, uh, Wind of War, also wrote a, a nonfiction book called uh, "This is My God." And uh, he is Jewish, I'm not Jewish, but uh, nonetheless it was just so interesting to, to uh, read about a person, how he looks, at his spiritual life and, and so forth. But then there are other nonfiction books that, um, you know, in terms of management, for example, uh, there's a book called uh, Innovative University. Of course, that's right in my arena, which I, I, I need to uh, uh, know what uh, is defined as an innovative university and, and what we need to do well and so forth
1: like what you said about a person looking at their spiritual life. What is your definition of happiness?
0: How do I define happiness? I I, I think uh, I look at life as a journey and uh, uh, on this journey, uh, every day I look back and and to see how, uh, what did I do that is meaningful. And and now that I see myself as doing meaningful things, helping students uh, to become better educated, uh, to become better prepared for the world, and uh, uh, I look at my uh, impact on making the university a better place. I pride myself in leaving the institutions I, I work for a better place when I leave. And I certainly hope uh, that, uh, you know, five ten years from now, when I look back, when I leave the College of Charleston, I can say that I left the College of Charleston a better place than I found it. And, and to me, that would bring me the most enjoyment.
1: We have so many challenges facing us in 2021. Global warming, a pandemic, issues of social justice, difficult international relations. Are you optimistic about the future?
0: I, I'm absolutely optimistic about the future. I I think uh, even though we're seeing a lot of difficulties in terms of uh, the pandemic, social justice, and and international relations and so forth, but I think uh, human beings are rational beings and we are capable of finding solutions. I do believe that even though democracy we know is not perfect, but it's still the best system. The US is not perfect, but it's the best country to live in. And, and so I do think that we will find good solutions for our challenges and the future is bright.